Welcome everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. I've got such a treat for you today, you're not going to believe your ear holes. We're rerunning one of the most popular episodes of Dan Snow's History Hit that has ever been broadcast. It features Pete Brown, who's a beer historian. Yes, that job actually exists. I've brought you a sex historian before, but now I'm bringing you a historian of beer. Pete Brown has written many wonderful books. He's been at the heart of a campaign that has seen beer, proper beer, not lager, proper beer, placed back at the heart of British global drinking culture. He's an activist. He's an author. He's a historian. He's a communicator, as you'll hear. It's an absolute treat to be rerunning this podcast from 2015 or 16. I don't even know. It was so long ago. I've even forgotten what happened. This podcast could be older than the Trump presidency. Wow. Anyway, enjoy. If you want to go and listen to other episodes of this podcast without listening to ads, or you want to go and watch one of hundreds of hours of documentaries that we've made, please go to History Hit TV. It's been all over the press here in the UK, thanks to the remarkable story of John Watts, the man who was born eight months after his father was killed, 80 years ago in 1940. It's been trending here in the UK. It's been lots of news shows. Thank you very much for all the attention. Welcome to all the, the new subscribers. If you use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, you get a month for free. So you check it all out for free. Then if you like it, your second month for just one pound, euro or dollar. So head over there to historyhit.tv and check it out. In the meantime, everybody, enjoy Pete Brown. Pete, I am so excited. We have got beer that we can drink and we've got an excuse because it's history. Absolutely. The history of beer is the history of the British people. And so over a beer, you can talk about whatever you like. Exactly. Well, let's open a beer and talk about that. You've got a, I see you've got a uh, bottle opener there, do you? Yep. I go everywhere I can with a bottle opener. I've got my bottle opener and my uh, door key, my front door key. The two essentials. <laughs> yes, the two things I need wherever I go. What beer have you brought in? Uh, so I thought for the for the day I'd bring in some beers that are kind of more historical in their uh, in their significance. Uh, and I've kind of got the last three hundred years of the history of British beer here in amazing. In and, and let's just be clear: that's not just beer with a funny historical name. Is this is this because it's beer that's Beer, yeah, but it's kind of the history of beer over the last few hundred years and the different styles that have come out. Beer was one of the drivers of the Industrial Revolution and London was where a lot of that stuff happened. So some of the greatest beer styles in the world were invented here. And, you know, what we saw over the last 50 years or so was a lot of those styles disappearing as people kind of went to big mainstream industrial lager. And what you've got with the craft beer movement now is people really going back and trying to find these old styles and recreate them. Okay, that's interesting. Is that that right? I thought people just were inventing new nice tasting beer and giving it an old-fashioned name and claiming but are there actual historic recipes and methods are being regenerated i think i think that used to happen if you go back into real ale uh and the sort of old country pub style thing with you know old old ruttock's rusty ferret smasher or whatever you know there, there was that willful kind of uh attempts to make things sound a lot older than they actually were. Uh, Real ale, as we know it, is Britain's national drink. It's very traditional. Only really goes back about 140 years. What?! Yeah. That's insane. The production methods of it, it's all about producing fresh ale, uh, which, you know, it bre- it's brewed in about five days, then it goes into casks, and then it's ready to be served in a pub within a few days. Before that happened, it was a lot more common for beer to be aged for up to a year. Uh, and there were very strong beers that were designed to withstand export, and they were designed to mature and change in, in the wood uh, for up to a year while they, were, while they were maturing. And that's why 
beer kept people alive on long journeys overseas Absolutely. or okay fine so you talking can... of that one let's open yes probably oh, the I most never open. <laughs> talking, probably right? the most celebrated export beer uh its history is is very contentious but it's it's been revived as the beer that's really driving the the craft beer movement around the world now and it's it's an india pale ale of course yeah yeah everyone's drinking again. ipa um i wrote a book uh, about five cheers. years ago cheers so this is an IPA produced by uh, Pressure Dropper, a brewery in uh, uh, in, oh, in Hackney. I'm, I'm partially responsible for these guys being in business, which fills me with ambivalent feelings. They, <laughs> they read a piece I wrote about the Jolly Butchers pub in Stoke Newington, went to the Jolly Butchers, they were so blown away by the beers there, they opened a brewery, they quit their jobs in the city and opened a brewery. So it's nice to see them doing well. <laughs> and, and so let's talk about India Pale. What, why is it called that? It's brewed... Uh, I, I'd read something over the weekend... Uh, that said it was ale that was brewed in India and exported to the UK. I mean, why would anyone want to do that? I don't know. It was actually during the, the time of the British Raj, uh, and I, I learned all this when I did my book, was that uh, the British presence in India was originally trading. Um, we wanted to kind of trade uh, silks and fabrics in India. And, of course, every time ships came over the horizon, the price of fabrics would go up massively and so the British left behind these little stations full time that they called factories uh, to buy the fabrics when it was advantageous to buy them and then sort of put them on the ships when the ships arrived now between buying the old kind of bundles of fabric there was nothing to do and the British in India just drank themselves stupid Uh, there was a local drink called Arak which is made by uh, getting palm sap out of the top of a tree let it ferment in the sun the really good quality stuff the really vintage stuff only sends you blind um, <laughs> most filthy, of it, the, the, the first British, well, the first European deaths in the Far East were from drinking arak. So we had to have something. The British troops, when they went over, life expectancy about three months. So, um, so they needed really good quality beer uh, in order for troops and civilians in India would drink that instead of drinking the local stuff. And it had to be strong because arak was very strong. Uh, the strength helped it survive the export. And the journey took six months. And something about the journey made the beer change. And when it got to India, um, contemporary accounts are all about it being, it's very ripe. It's ripened beautifully. So there was something happening in that beer. So I decided to kind of have a barrel of the traditional beer brewed, take it to India with me on ships uh, and, and see what happened. Uh, which was interesting. <laughs> what did it come out like? Well, it sort of it did mature. It did mature. You, you get you get this incredible temperature variation when you're going across the equator, uh, which affects the beer. It ages the beer, uh, and you've got this constant movement as well. You've got this kind mm. of total constant rocking for you know between three and six months, and it just turned into something that was kind of like half beer, half champagne. Uh, it was really special. And when I opened it in Calcutta. Uh, at this kind of business delegation, this one guy came up and said, what is this trick you're trying to pull? This is not beer, it's wine. No, and I no. said, no, no, it's beer, it's beer. No, this is ridiculous. You take us for fools. And then he came back half an hour later saying, can I have some more, please? Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, because this podcast is so brilliant, you're doing all the talking, I'm doing all the drinking, so I'm almost done on the yeah, old Yeah, I'm behind. It's absolutely fantastic. But can, so let, can we just, let's wind it all about this, because I'm, I'm too excited here. Beer is one of the oldest sort of recipes and and all this man-made things that we have any record of, right? So yeah. why do we drink beer and not water? Uh, a few reasons, quite a few reasons. Uh, in cities and towns, the water supply gets polluted pretty quickly. You know, there's always beautiful springs out in the countryside, but when the population urbanised, uh, I mean, just near here, um, the, the John Snow pub just up in... Um, 
near Cannabis Street, that was a sense of a massive uh, typhoid outbreak that they sort of tied back to the local water supply. It was safer to drink water because it's been boiled uh, when you make beer. It was safer to drink water than it so, sorry, safer to drink beer than it was to drink water. So that's one reason. Another reason is it's readily uh, accessible form of nutrients. It's got lots of uh, carbohydrates, it lots of vitamins. It is good for you people. You heard it here. Like everything else, if you're not drinking too much of it, it yeah. is positively good for you. Uh, and it used to, wheat beers used to be given out in workhouses, hospitals, schools, uh, because it kept people alive. So Okay, so in ancient Mesopotamia, all the way through to, to Britain, it was safer to drink beer. because so you, so you do, you boil that water, and they didn't know that was why it was good for for you because presumably they didn't know that the germs are in the but they, but they just knew at some stage of that process yeah. it was good for you we didn't know what made it unsafe we, we had no idea what microbes and microorganisms were until about uh, 150 180 years ago but we knew from very ancient times that if you boiled water then it was safer and if you're going to boil it why is, why not chuck some barley and hops in it and turn it into beer yeah, and it tastes it tastes better. There's some nutrition in it, and it gets you a bit tipsy, which is which is fun. Yeah, I mean, most of our greatest people in our history, uh, all these incredible achievements that people have done, they were half cut when they were doing oh, it. <laughs> I mean, it's remarkable, isn't it? I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Um, right. So, speaking of which, uh, speaking of remarkable achievements, let's get this podcast up to the next level. What's the next beer to try? Uh, I've got a beer from Fuller's just down the road. Uh, they've been working with a, a beer historian called Ron Pattinson. Uh, for, Fuller's have been going since uh, 1845. So they've got all these old records, uh, old history books of their recipes. Brewers used to write them in code so that no one else could steal them. Uh, and Ron has spent his life kind of trying to break these codes. And so he's been working with Fuller's over the last few years to recreate beers from, from their archives. Oh, so this is Fuller's Past Masters. Past Masters is the name of the series. Uh, it's a strong ale, I think, from um, around the sort of eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties. So, so this is the kind of thing that people were drinking in in, in London uh, in the sort of late nineteenth oh, century. It's dark, isn't it? Yeah, they can actually smell some of the age on there. You get that kind of oh, yeah, dried fruit character. Yeah. That's this bottle's a few years old, and wow. that's what's coming through there. God, that's that's a that's a weird taste, isn't it? I'm- it is. It, if you get that taste in a weak beer that's not got much body to it, then it's horrible. Yeah. When you get it in a stronger beer that's got more body in it to counter it. It's, it's tastes thick. I mean, not like Guinness, sort of thick as in creamy, but it just has a real thick taste in the mouth, isn't it? And and is that... I mean, do taste change? Are we more sophisticated, less sophisticated? Is this a sort of simpler beer to brew? Why is this an older sort of taste? I think it's a bone of contention, you know, because there's a, a massive orthodoxy in the beer industry today that people want light refreshment. If you look at lager ads today, it's all about easy drinking refreshment, and that means it's cold, it's fizzy, it goes down really quickly. And I like that on a, on a hot summer's day, that's great. But there seems to be tied in with that, this idea that people don't like strong flavours. And if you go back a hundred years, this is the kind of stuff we put now. Now you know this is this is not for the faint-hearted. This is quite strong, powerful beer, and this is what everyone was drinking. But it's interesting. You talk to food historians about food a hundred years, two hundred years older. The the flavours are insane, aren't they? I think perhaps perhaps because nowadays we're used to so many lovely smells and flavours all day that there's less emphasis at the meal times. But back then they just sort of threw the kitchen sink at everything, didn't they? Because I think things were so bland the rest of the time, you might as well... And your ingredients were uh, very variable. You couldn't really rely on quality the way we can today. Um, I've got one beer here which has been laced with a bit of wild yeast, which might be quite interesting when we get on to that. But until the 1870s, 1880s, you couldn't guarantee that you were getting a clean fermentation from your beer. And so if you were getting these off notes from wild 
child yeast, you had to chuck a lot more stuff in there to cover that up and and to get roughly the flavour that you were trying to get. And now traditionally in this country, would would every family brew their own beer? Town, village, parish? Go back to the Middle Ages. uh, Brewing was an activity that happened in every household, the way that making your own bread was. And it was always a task of the woman. Um, it was something that women did in the house. So the best ones would put up a, an ale stick outside the house to show the brew was ready. People would start to barter, buy some of the beer off the woman who was making it better than the rest of the village. About the 12th, sorry, about the 13th century, it starts to get taxed and ale houses start to become public places, uh, pubs, you know, the kind of forerunner of the pub. But you might have a front room that was public, yeah. but the family would still live elsewhere in the... Yeah, yeah. and you, you, there's, there's a handful of places like that left today uh, where you find these pubs that are just like people's front rooms and the beer's in the cellar and you bring it up in jugs and serve it. I've been to one like that in Pembrokeshire, which is definitely the best pub I've been to in the UK, I'm sure. <laughs> you've just written a book called uh, The Pub, it's out at the moment. I bet you've been to some... Brilliant historic pubs. Some insanely yeah. brilliant ones. Um, I mean, it, it's interesting because if you get a place like London, um, you know, it's constantly being rebuilt and reinvented and, and repurposed, and historic pubs don't really survive very well. You get out to the countryside uh, on the old kind of coaching routes, old sheep droving routes, these inns that were built for, for, for travellers and for merchants, and the ones that are still there. you just got centuries of history in a building, and for me to sit there and think, okay, somebody was sitting in this room doing exactly the same thing I'm doing right now, hundreds of years ago. That that, that purpose, that function hasn't changed one bit. Okay, so you got the women of the house would brew, uh, some of them would take it to the next level, open an establishment and, and, and serve to paying guests and everyone would come and drink there. I mean, does that just show that, that alcohol consumption it was at the heart of these communities as, as they're expanding and, and changing? Well, this is the thing about, you say, alcohol consumption. Um, we're living through a phase, and it's, this is cyclical, by the way. We're coming in and out of this, uh, of, of this sort of way of thinking. We're living uh, at a time now when we think that consuming alcohol is inherently a, a bad thing that you know oh, oh it's okay moderation so long as you drink responsibly but uh, but you know implicit in that is this idea that like smoking it's somehow bad for you for most of our history we've been drinking it's a natural thing and we're not the only animals that do it um, is that right? Yeah. Um, elephants, when they smell fermenting beer in India, have been known to charge factories. Uh, there's there's actually a theory of evolution, the uh, the drunken ape theory, uh, which is that the incredible aromas that rotting fruit gives off when it's being fermented by yeast um, attract sort of the most energetic and quizzical apes, and they're the ones that survive. Oh, my uh, goodness, that's a great theory. <laughs> that's, if it's true, I will be very happy. That's and, so, uh, and, and so I think drinking alcohol is a perfectly natural thing for the human condition, and that it's, it's as natural to us as eating, and changing your brain chemistry to relax and to de-stress is, you know, and for most of our history, we've been having to put with a lot of pretty grim situations and grim circumstances and you know a nice drink at the end of the day takes the edge off and um i think that's that's what we've done for for most of our history have you ever wondered if the hanging gardens of babylon were actually real or what made alexander so great join me tristan hughes twice a week every week on the ancients from history hit where i'm joined by leading academics best-selling authors and world-class archaeologists to shine a light on some of ancient history's most fascinating questions, like who built Stonehenge and why? What are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why are they so valuable? And were the Spartan warriors really as formidable as the history books say? 
Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Right, let's go. Next beer, what have we got here? Because I am out. I'm dry. (laughs) So this is the one I mentioned with Wild Yeast. There's a uh, Louis Pasteur and Emile Hansen who worked at the Carlsberg Laboratory. Managed to isolate. Louis, Louis Pasteur worked at the Carlsberg. Sorry, he, he uh, Hansen was a student of Pasteur who worked at the Carlsberg Laboratory, uh, and Pasteur first identified that fermentation was caused by yeast. Um, the chemists in the mid nineteenth century believed that uh, fermentation, the conversion of sugar to alcohol, was just this process, this reaction that happened, and Pasteur proved that it was living organisms in the beer that caused it to happen which was revolutionary. So we've been brewing beer for probably about 10,000 years, and uh, it took Pasteur in the 1870s to say, and the reason it works is these tiny little single-cell organisms that eat sugar and crap out alcohol and carbon dioxide. That is extraordinary. <laughs> Isn't that a great thing? Isn't that amazing? Um, so, as you say, all these wonderful women brewing all the way, well, from ancient, ancient Mesopotamia onwards, but you know, medieval, they actually didn't know what was happening. No. They just knew to add these ingredients and wonderful things would occur. I, was, I spent a lot of time with a cider maker last year, and he said, we simply act as if we know what we're doing. And, and when we find out what we're doing, it doesn't change much. It doesn't really change, yeah. No, yeah. Just no. chuck the dead rat. The cider guys chuck the rat in. That was always, Absolutely. Yeah, that was always said. So, so this beer is a porter. And wow. Porter was the first industrial beer. Uh, in London, from around the 1720s, 1730s, this was when the housewives and, and the sort of brew pubs moved and it became about, all about big industrial breweries. A lot of informa- inventions and innovations like steam power, uh, the use of microscopes, the use of hydrometers, was all kind of pioneered by the brewing industry and the first big industrial breweries in the world were in london not far from where we are now and porter was the first big industrial beer so this beer was right so that was driving industrial sort of the industrialization of production yeah so they could the bigger they got the cheaper they could supply their beer it got to the point where they could supply pubs cheaper than pubs could brew it themselves and so you get the big names like whitbread names like watney's uh all kind of all coming up, up in london and this was a beer style and this was aged in massive wooden vats uh as i said for about a year for a year and there's a slight funky note to this beer. Yes, there is. And this is uh, this is by uh, 
um, Eldridge Pope up in uh, Kings Lynn, near Kings Lynn, and they've just said, well, if you were storing these beers in wood for a year, the Britannomyces, these natural yeasts that live in wood, would have got into the beer, and they give it this kind of like slight oh, wow. sourness, a slight dryness. So this is the taste, as far as we can tell, of what everybody in London was drinking through the 18th century. That is brilliant. This and gin. Mm. And you could then transport this. So we are we imagining Nelson's Navy? Were they, were they drinking porter beer? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as in fact, in volume terms, more porter went to India than than oh, IPA did. It's okay. just that IPA was the, the big rock star beer, you know. And uh, and yeah, the British, the Brit- the Industrial Revolution was fueled by porter, and the British everywhere in the world were fueled by porter. And our sailors. Dominating the world's oceans are fueled by porter as well. Definitely, it's all connected, definitely, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is slightly, yeah, it's kind of a little bit tart. It's uh, mm. it's probably not what you expect from a beer. I'm not sure if you like it or not, but it's, uh... it's dark, it's cloudy. <laughs> do, do you know what? To be honest, I'm enjoying it very much. Oh, good. But, uh, it could be the company, but I, yeah, I think I, I, my favourite so far, I think, still is that IPA. Yeah. Um, and it's, but that could be the modern, the modern. I'm more used to drinking that. Well, this is a thing, and the weird thing about this IPA is that if you could take it to India in uh say um 1830 and i love that by the way that's my favorite beer style at the moment but if you took a bottle of that to a, to calcutta in 1830 they would pour it into the harbor and say this is green it's raw it's not ripe yet all the beautiful big hot, vibrant fruity hot flavors that we love now until about 50 years ago were considered completely unsuitable in beer <laughs> because it hadn't aged properly yeah because these last two they yeah they age they it tastes almost if you have a uh, this is, uh, if you have a, a wine that's a little bit too old, I mean, there's, there's, there's a sense of that age in these ones, isn't there? But yeah. It's still, no, it's still very good. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> and uh, what, what, what's next? So my final one is uh, is the daddy of them. Um, this is uh, Russian Imperial Stout. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Three words that should never go together. <laughs> so this was the favourite drink of Catherine the Great. Okay. Who would demand that um, all her courtiers drank it. Um it was it was kind of again originated in London. This is taking Porter and just ramping everything up, just setting everything up to eleven. Okay, so I need mean, to ask you about this. So, so what? It's really embarrassing. I hope uh, no one judged me. But what is stout? It's a like a lot of things in beer. It's a marketing term okay. originally. So Porter was the style of drink. And again, where did its name come from? No one really knows. Uh, Arthur Guinness saw how successful Porter was in London. Started brewing it in. Uh, in Dublin, they'd brewed ale before that, uh, and then he made a. They inve- they sort of pioneered using really dark roasted barley. Uh, now you get a pale ale or a lager, the barley in that has been very lightly kilned, so you get these kind of biscuity breakfast cereal flavours from it. You turn the heat up a bit, and it's like roasting coffee beans. You know, you could That's get. It's a bit like that, isn't it? Yeah, it and when you really get roast barley into it, yeah. you get coffee and chocolate notes. And so Arthur, actually, it was the second Arthur Guinness who really cracks that, and and he called it extra stout porter because it was stronger. And oh, I bigger. see. Oh, extra stout. Okay, well that makes so sense. So that was yeah. just reduced to stout then. So this is the big amped up version that was uh, the trade between uh, England and St. Petersburg. We we ran out of wood to make beer barrels out of, so we started going to uh, to the Baltic to buy uh, Russian oak. If you're sending ships to pick up Russian oak, uh, you need to kind of have the ship full of something going that way 
before you bring the wood back the other way, and so we put beer on there. And the Russians really like British beer. Sending booze to Russia is sure like taking <laughs> coals to Newcastle, isn't it? I mean, what's the point? They've got well, it's good to hear they developed a taste for the um, British beer. Yeah. So this is another strong export beer designed to to, to survive export. Um, the it was originally what's well, it's now Courage, well, it's now Charles Wells. It's the brewers just change hands all the time, but it was originally Anchor Brewery in uh, in Southwark that that created this this beer. It's been kind of passed down, handed down, uh, and this was the brewery where when it was well, it was Thrale's Brewery before it was Anchor Brewery, and when uh, when the Thrale family sold it, they were very good friends with Samuel Johnson, and that's when he said, "We're not just selling a parcel of vats here; we're selling the potential to become rich beyond the dreams of avarice," and and that's where that. That that phrase comes from, yeah, brilliant. Because it was about sell, making this beer. Is this the opposite of small beer? Where's the expression "small beer"? Yeah, small beer is. So you've got a big mash tun full of full of malted barley. You put your water through that. You heat it up, and you extract all the fermentable sugar out of the barley. And you run that off into a separate vessel. Add the hops. When ferment it, that's where you get your beer from. The more sugar in that liquid, uh, the stronger your beer is going to be. Small beer, you'd keep your leftover grains and you'd put more water through it again and just flush out the very last bits of sugar and flavour and everything else. And it would ferment to about two, 1% to 2% ABV. Okay, and that's um, what that's you give your kids. Beer. That's what you give to okay. kids. That's what you hand out in workhouses, schools, hospitals. You can't get drunk off it, but it's still got a lot of nutritional value. Yeah, and it's interesting... Um, Nowadays, was it was it Carlsberg or someone the other day tried to reintroduce a sort of the lunchtime beer idea, and it would be one or two percent, and it didn't didn't really work apparently. But uh, no, a lot of people have tried it, yeah. and uh, I think we're just too scared of it at the moment. It's like, well, it's beer; it's one percent. Do you know freshly squeezed orange juice is not point five percent ABV? No way. <laughs> yeah, the, the natural fermentation that happens in in uh, in sugar sugary drinks you know we're drinking alcohol all the time without even knowing it 0.5 1% 2% really isn't that much that's fascinating isn't it and and now the history of beer i suppose has come uh what's its relationship with with wine always been because now suddenly it's very fashionable again but i suppose when when i you and i were growing up beer was seen mm. as a bit of a a lout drink for younger men and, and sophisticated people drank wine. and so ha, ha, That that presumably has changed through the... Oh, I'd say Catherine the Great's. This was her favourite tipple, so it must have been very grand at one stage. Yeah, they, they've had an, an uneven relationship. And the, the inferiority thing with beer, and it's something that a lot of us in beer have fought against a bit until recently, um, it kind of comes from two places. It comes from Romans, uh, who obviously drank a lot of wine. Uh, when they came north into Europe, they, they thought that beer was a, a barbarian's beverage. You know, they, they came to Britain, they came to Germany, and they, they found people drinking, people they considered to be barbarians drinking this. Uh, wine of malt, they, they, they called it, and said it was inferior. And then, of course, you've got, after um, the Norman invasion... Uh, you've got this sort of duality in a lot of British life where the French version of something is classier than the than the English version. Uh, you think about how many French words we use, like a restaurant, you know, or, you know, cuisine is better than cooking and, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and and wine, wine has done a brilliant... The French have done a brilliant, brilliant job of marketing wine around the world as the classiest beverage. Now, if you've been to France, if you're into your wine, and any honest wine critic will tell you, there's dreadful wine and there's brilliant wine. Uh, same with beer. There's dreadful beer and there's brilliant beer. And I, most of the people I meet who work in the industry 
the people who really know and are passionate about wine are also passionate about great beer and and vice versa and i meet a few people go oh we've got to tell people that beer's better than wine no it's not and wine's not better than beer Mm. but the best of each are just are just wonderful and we can imagine so catherine the great drinking her russian stout so she wouldn't have sort of moved to a french claret for a big state banquet or anything i mean has there always been this relationship between wine and beer um, I, I I don't know enough about other countries, but uh, but she's on record as being very famously kind of insisting that everyone uh, drank British beer, and she she boasted that she could outdrink any Englishman when it when it came, when it came to beer. It. She was a formidable woman in every way, uh, and now now of course we've got this unbelievable revolution in beer going on crud across. You can hardly buy a, an old school industrial commercial beer in the United States and Canada, and here in the UK it's changing very rapidly as well. Changing the whole industry. I think when you look at beer, because it's ubiquitous and because it's the absolute kind of. Um, lifeblood of ordinary working people whatever the biggest forces are in society will shape beer so after the housewives brewing it um you know at that time um the monastery's religion was the most powerful force in the country so the monks brewed beer then you get the industrial revolution and so it's big industry that produces beer 40 50 years ago we start to produce from we start to move from more of a simple production focused economy to a more marketing oriented economy and it was classy adverts and big advertising campaigns and sponsorship that dictated beer now we're living in in a time when it's the rejection of that when people don't want things handed to them by big brands they want personal they want artisanal uh, they want local they want to know the person who's made whether you're talking about bread cheese beer um th- this is this is what people want and it actually took beer a long time to catch up with the the broader food trend but now it's finally happened and it's changing the entire industry because as, a, as a, i'm half canadian and canadians i mean people thought the u.s beer was bad canadian beer was extraordinary i mean it was i can't mention it obviously because i don't get sued but there were two basic brands that we i know them well <laughs> and uh going there as a kid it was well, as a kid, sorry as an over 18 year old <laughs> yes uh, it was it was pretty brutal and now you know obviously here in britain but particularly in north america the change is just extraordinary isn't it it really is it really is and although it's still small in terms of like the total share of the market it's where all the action's happening uh and i do some consultancy to the industry and all the kind of manufacturers of big lager brands they're saying tell me about craft what do i do should we be changing our business uh and it's uh it's affecting everything the big businesses need to give it a silly label with some stupid pros on it and uh, call it a craft beer the problem is they they they, they educate us out of the state they want us to be in so when we all started drinking lager in the 70s they said oh okay the best lager comes from continental europe Mm. and so british people start going to continental europe and come back and go yeah you're absolutely right and the stuff you're serving us is crap imitations of that and so we get more sophisticated then they say okay we need to make ourselves seem a bit more sophisticated we start educating people about ingredients and processes and they go oh yeah okay yeah and you're not doing that (laughs) so so we kind of get educated out of our ignorance by the people who want to keep us there yeah. and then we go well you say it's all about authenticity and quality thank you very much i'm going to go over here to some guy who really does do that well brewing is probably one of the oldest human professions and luckily it seems to be in um absolutely fantastic form at the moment absolutely yeah there is, there is an argument another argument historically that the domestication of grain for brewing 
came before the domestication mm. of wheat for bread. It drove the whole thing. The whole of yeah. civilization is based on yeah. the desire for bread. And as soon as you've got as soon as you've got farming, grain farming, you've got permanent settlements, you've got the first cities and towns. So beer as the root cause of civilization is my sort of <laughs> argument really. Fill up that stout. The the podcast will end on that note. Two blokes drinking beer, putting the world to rights. Absolutely. Hi everyone, thanks for reaching the end of this podcast. Most of you are probably asleep, so I'm talking to your snoring forms, but anyone who's awake, it would be great if you could do me a quick favour. Head over to wherever you get your podcasts and rate it five stars and then leave a nice glowing review. It makes a huge difference for some reason to how these podcasts do. Madness, I know, but them's the rules. Then we go further up the charts, more people listen to us and everything will be awesome. So thank you so much. Now sleep well. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.